Welcome to Modest Proposals, where we will search and find solutions to big problems, small problems, and problems you never knew existed. I am your host, Federico Byron, and thrilled to begin our first episode sharing with you a conversation with the learned Dr. Lloyd Mitchell. Dr. Mitchell is the author of... I should say at the beginning that I am not at this present moment Dr. Mitchell. My publicist wrote that in error. Oh, that's all right. No harm done. And when will I be able to honor you with that esteemed title? I will be granted my PhD this autumn, and then I will proudly and quite rightly use the title doctor. Well, I don't mean to go off topic, and I promise we'll get right back to your book, but what is the subject of your dissertation? I'm glad you asked. The title of my doctoral dissertation is Transracial Student Retainment in Community Colleges, How to Meet Students' Needs. Oh, wow. That sounds like an important and informative study. I can't wait to read it. And I can't wait to share it with the world. From the title, uh, I assume that transracial student retainment in community colleges is a problem in search of a solution? It is. And like many of these issues, the biggest problem is that no one wants to talk about it. Uh, perhaps a sneak peek for our audience before we get into your recently published book. What is going on with transracial student retainment at community colleges? Well, obviously, since it's the topic of my PhD, there's a lot to it, and it would take an entire episode. However, in a nutshell, my research is on the academic progress of transracial students at the community colleges of Pennsylvania. Now, just to clarify for our audience, transracial means... Essentially, a person who is objecting to his or her or their race assigned to him or her or them at birth. So these are young students who are racially fluid. Exactly. These students are going through the process of identifying with their true race, which is the race in their hearts. They are strong, brave people, and we owe a lot to them. Their courage is inspirational. It's quite a story, and I can't wait to share it with the world. Me too. I'm fascinated. I'm intrigued. But I must stop myself right there because we have your important book in our hands today. So, let me begin all over again. Welcome, Lloyd Mitchell. Lloyd Mitchell is the author of the new book, Learning to Look, How to See Racism in Everyday Things. Welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Now, to be fair for our audience, uh, who can hear you but do not see you, you identify as... A straight white male. I'm sorry. No, no need to apologize here on Modest Proposals. And if you are on the show next year, do you think you will still be a straight white man? That's a good question. As someone who feels racially fluid and at, at home with many races, you never know. <laughs> we'll find out next year. Okay, I hope so. And I'm looking forward to some surprises. Now, back to your book, Learning to Look. A little background for our listeners. This little book set off a very big bidding war for the rights. What happened there? I think it was quite standard in the publishing world. My agent sent the first draft of the manuscript to the major publishing houses and it was very well received. That led to a series of bids for the rights and to make a long story short, I decided Crown Publishing Group made the most sense. We both agreed with our vision of the final book and that is the most important part of the relationship between the author and a publishing house. And I was especially impressed with Crown's wonderful book by Andrew Cuomo, American Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic. Oh, now there's a book everyone should read. Now, you've got quite a figure 
for your book. You were paid quite a lot of money. Was it really a seven-figure deal? I prefer not to get involved in the details of the publishing world. I'm more interested in the ideas behind the book. You're right, you're right. Now, when I first came across your book, I thought the topic was art. I couldn't have been further from the truth. Not necessarily. You may have been closer to the truth than you thought. In what way? The book teaches how to properly see things that are right in front of us. It teaches how to look and how to see what is not apparent to the well-trained eye. So in a sense, it's not unlike learning to look at art, where one needs a knowledge of history and, frankly, a little backstory to appreciate the work of art. Excellent point. Um, it is a fascinating and insightful, and I dare say important book. And I'm in love with every aspect of it. There's so much to cover, but let me start off with the most obvious question. Why did you write this book? <coughs> First, this is a subject that we rarely speak about. The fundamental problem is that people don't see it. Racism. Yes. We live in a desert of information about racism, and this book is a first step. A first step towards seeing the world properly, seeing the world through colored lenses, seeing what is out there right in front of our eyes, and taking heed at what it is saying. Now, as I write in the book, I don't know if people are in denial or people simply don't see it. But I don't care why people don't see racism. My job is to help people see racism. I think of myself as a doctor who is curing a patient. You see, a doctor isn't concerned with how the patient contracted the illness or became injured. The doctor's first order of business is simply concerned with curing the patient. The how and the why come later. So this is a book that will teach the reader a great deal. A guide, if you will. I thought at times, while reading, that it was a tour book guiding me through a foreign country. Telling me this is what I see, and this is what it means. That's a very apt description. And that's the wonder of a book like this. For some, it will be a guide. For some, it will be an epiphany. And for others, those good, woke people, it will be a booster shot, if you will. I do like this idea of the book being a sort of tour guide. After all, we certainly wouldn't expect someone from America to be able to understand, uh, let's say, the History Museum of Nepal, without the help of a guide to understand the nuances of Nepalese history. I have a question, if I may. Why do you think most of us don't see it? Why can't we see racism in everyday things? We have been trained from an early age to accept it, to not question it. Who are our heroes in America? The oppressors are our heroes. And our heroes are those who keep quiet. You want to get a name for yourself in America? then by all means and at all costs, keep quiet. Hard to argue with that. It's always difficult to argue against facts. So true, so true. Now, your book is also full of excellent examples. One of my favorites was the chapter on children's books. And the example of the giving tree, a personal favorite when I was a child, but now, thanks to your insightful academic study, I see it in a new light. It is illuminating, isn't it? I felt good. I felt better, almost cleansed after reading that chapter and rereading the book and finally seeing things as they truly are. I'm so happy to hear that. Explain for the benefit of our audience, if you will, the essence of the example you write regarding the giving tree. And, and please don't worry, dear listener, about a spoiler. This is a book I promise you will read again and again. Well, first of all, the title is a misnomer. It shouldn't be the giving tree, but rather the taking man. The man takes and takes and takes. 
and the tree has no choice but to give. But of course, the tree is not giving. The tree is being robbed. The tree has no choice in the matter. And the author writes the great lie. The tree was happy. Let that sink in for a moment. What is this book really teaching? Are you asking me? Sure. I think, or, or rather I thought, that the book was teaching that giving and sharing would bring you happiness, and the joy bestowed upon others would bring you joy. That giving was, for lack of a better phrase, a good thing to do, the right thing to do. Do you believe that? I did until I read this book. <laughs> you simply have to read these things and look at these things with open eyes. The giving tree is nothing more than right-wing propaganda aimed at keeping people of color as subjects to the white patriarchal power structure. Brilliant. Brilliant. I'm happy I read your book and I see things more clearly. Thank you. And on behalf of my listeners who will buy your book, thank you once again. You're welcome. Now, oddly enough, you are not in favor of banning books. You are adamantly against the so-called cancel culture. Absolutely. We want these books to be read, but for the first time, read and analyzed and understood properly. And the lessons in The Giving Tree are rather clear, and these lessons are, make no mistake about it, wrong. Now, you also mentioned in your book that giving books appropriate titles would better serve us. Rather than banning the books, you are pushing for retitling books. Yes. <clears throat> if The Giving Tree is to be read, it must be properly titled The Taking Man. And I think it's a compromise that will keep both sides of this debate content. And there are other suggestions uh, for appropriately retitled books. Would you share with us some of those ideas? Which were your favorites? Oh, there were so many. Uh, let me name the book and you tell us the appropriate title that you favor. Sounds like fun. The Catcher in the Rye. White Privilege. To Kill a Mockingbird. White Trial Lawyer Fails to Save the Day. Romeo and Juliet. The Pitfalls of Heterosexual Relationships. Wonderful. Wonderful. I can go on all day, but we'd better move on. And you also have in your book a guide for teachers to teach the book. For the benefit of our teachers and parents out there listening, will you tell us about your ideas? And maybe so we don't give away too much of the book, we'll stay on the topic of The Giving Tree. Sure. Sure. I think it's imperative that when children read books like The Giving Tree and see the pictures in this book, that they are told that there are two things happening here. And the first being? The first being the man, who we know is white, for the books in black and white. That a white man is taking everything that this tree has to offer? The tree, of course, being the symbolic person of color, or even the environment, who has been ravaged by the white man. I see that. It's grossly apparent. Now, the second part of your book, the real genius. The second is the environmental side. The giving tree is telling us a white man can chop down a tree and the tree will be happy. The planet is being destroyed for the white man's pleasure, for his own utility. Essentially, the exploitation of the planet. Man wants, man takes. Truly, an excellent analysis. I will never look at the giving tree or any other children's book in the same way. Thanks to you, I am learning to look. I'm very happy. Now, your chapter on literature can be a little more obscure or nuanced. However, I found your chapter on immigration very spot on and exceedingly clear and to the point. This is where you point out that we can actually see racism in action overtly, right in front of us, without doubt of any doubt that it is happening. Absolutely. Explain. Well, it's quite simple. 
the United States accepts close to a million immigrants each year. 78% of those immigrants are of persons of color. Which is generally used, by racist I might add, to prove that the United States is not a fundamentally racist nation. But you tear that argument apart at its core. That's right. The simplistic explanation peddled to us by those racists in power is that immigration of people of color shows we're not a fundamentally racist country. But if we really look at immigration, what do you see? I see, or I have been conditioned to see, men and women, families from all countries coming to the United States in order to improve their lives. And it's, and in essence, improving the United States as well. That's what we're sold. But the truth, what is the truth? I don't know, but I think I'm going to find out. The truth is our immigration system is only an extension of our slavery system. The immigrants are not welcomed into this nation with open arms. They are expected to work. They are, in fact, forced to work. The American system, propped up by corporations whose interests are only in increasing profits for their white shareholders and paying taxes to their white governments, is dependent upon this. I'm going to say it, this slave labor. It might look different from the cotton fields of Mississippi from the 19th century, but it is, is at its very core, the same system. You look confused. I, I am. When I see pictures of the border, I can't help but see people escaping a system that doesn't work for them and willing to join a system that does or will at least give them a fair shake. Those poor souls who we see at the American border have been tricked. They have been duped. They will be used and abused in America and then thrown out like apple cores and we'll open up our borders for more. And you can bet your bottom dollar they will be people of color. Brilliant. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Now, one of the final things I'd like to do is play a sort of game. I'm going to say a thing, a product, a piece of art, a piece of music, and you will say what is racist about it. And for our audience, I want you to understand that this is not some kind of parlor trick. This is real, and I am unfairly springing it on our guest. Are you up to it? Absolutely. I love a challenge. Considering how well-researched your book is, and your knowledge of the subject, and the fact that you are correct, I suspect it will hardly be a challenge. Ready? Ready. Coffee. Absolutely racist. And I don't mean simply because the majority of coffee drinkers are white. Did you know that black coffee is the least popular way to drink coffee? I did not know that. And what is added to it? Cream. Why cream? Why do white people add cream to coffee? Because they like the flavor, the texture? Because people have been brainwashed to think that it's better. And what does creamer really do when you look at the coffee? It lightens it. Absolutely. It's almost a sin to drink black coffee. I hardly think that's an accident. Wow. And how do you prefer your coffee? Coffee is a white supremacist beverage rooted in years of colonial exploitation. Every cup of coffee consumed in America is a form of microaggression. And I prefer tea. Hmm. I see. Next up, Mozart. Absolutely racist. Listening to Mozart perpetuates the white power structure status quo. Now here's what you need to understand. This is key. Where was Mozart born? Where did he live? Where did he spend his life? Austria? Vienna, if I'm not terribly mistaken? Exactly. Do you know anything about the diversity of Vienna in the early 19th century? I would assume there was very little. Exactly. 
Mozart perpetuates white supremacy at its core. If you are watching a movie with a Mozart or any piece of romantic orchestration, you should do yourself a favor and shut it off. And I should add, the entire essence of full symphonic orchestrations, classical music, and these ostentatious music halls for performances, all these things are rooted in the horrors and myths of white European patriarchal systems that oppress people of color, both past and present, and unless you read and learn from the book, the future too. So, we have some work to do, don't we? Yes, we do, but we will not shirk from the responsibility of seeing and understanding and preaching the truth. Now, it's the time for me to play the devil's advocate. I hate to do it, because I agree 100% with everything you're saying, but it does keep our minds sharp, and it gives you a chance to respond to some of the nasty, baseless critiques of the haters. I'm always up for an honest debate on the ideas. Great. Here goes. Professor Tom Nelson of Yale Law School was recently rather critical of your book. To take one quote from his interview on Fox News, boo, he said, and I quote, Lloyd Mitchell's book is essentially the rantings of a child who has never stepped foot off a college campus. His notion that everything is racial leaves out one key fact of every discussion on these issues. We are human beings. We are not and should never be judged by the color of our skin. But that is exactly what Mitchell is advocating. He is the antithesis of Martin Luther King and every person who has fought for equality and human rights. End quote. What, Lloyd Mitchell, do you say to that? Professor Tom Nelson represents the pathetic and dying patriarchal racist system that I am fighting against. There is nothing else to say, only to add, he is a white supremacist fascist. That's a good rebuttal, strong point. And I'm afraid we're running out of time. Sorry to hear that. It has been my great pleasure to spend this time with you. I hope we can do it again very soon, and we have very much enjoyed your lessons on learning how to look. And I look forward to a conversation about the problem of transracial student retention at Pennsylvania Community Colleges. I'm looking forward to it as well. Ladies and gentlemen, dear listeners, the book is Learning to Look, How to Clearly See Racism in Everyday Things. Thank you, Lloyd Mitchell. My pleasure. Be sure to get a copy of Learning to Look. And tune in for our next episode of Modest Proposals when I will be interviewing Gertrude Braunschweiger and discussing her new book, Three Cheers for Pestilence, How Do-Gooders Are Destroying the Planet. Until then, remember, modest proposals are behind the solutions to problems large, problems small, and problems you never knew existed. Bye-bye.